Hi, this is Bill Crystal. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. I wanted to tell you about a new program I've begun with the Foundation for Constitutional Government. It's called Conversations, and I invite leading figures in American political and intellectual life for in-depth discussions. Recent ones we've had include Vice President Dick Cheney, General Jack Keane, and Peter Thiel. You can find these and all the conversations online at our website, which is conversationswithbillcrystal.org. They're also available on YouTube and on iTunes. So if you register at the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org, we'll send you emails to alert you to the new ones we add every two weeks. I think you'll enjoy them. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea, this is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard, and this week I'm looking at the November 17th issue, which starts off with a um, very interesting review um, by Stephen Hayward, who is a, a very well-known uh, historian and uh, a scholar of um, conservatism, uh, and something of an expert on environmental science and politics. And the book in question is entitled A Climate of Crisis, America in the Age of Environmentalism by Patrick Allett, <coughs> excuse me, which is published by Penguin Press. Patrick Allett is a British-born um, his American historian at Emory, uh, author of several um, well-received studies in the past, and this is a book about, the, in effect, the modern environmental movement and uh, how it has played out in the, in the uh, public arena, uh, the public square, as it were. Uh, it is a history of the modern environmental movement or modern environment and the uh, attendant environmental movement, which is to say from the mid-20th century on. And Patrick Allard is a historian. He is not a polemicist, and so there is not any particular special pleading here. But as Stephen Hayward points out, uh, in looking at uh, the evidence and looking at the science uh, and looking at the um, journalism and literature, uh, even looking at it objectively, you can draw some some uh, uh, reasonable conclusions, and that can be discerned to some degree in the title of the book, A Climate of Crisis, which is to say that one fault of the environmental movement to some degree is that it has, for whatever reasons, mostly politics, has lurched from crisis to crisis over the past half century, and uh, Lord knows that there are environmental crises and there are problems with the environment, which our system has dealt with uh, over a long period of time. But it has also meant that the sort of constant uh, drumbeat of uh, pending apocalypse and self-criticism um, uh, uh, in American society has... Uh, given environmental problems a, a public relations problem, which is to say that the public is now a little skeptical about it all. We hear so regularly that the apocalypse is around the corner, and when it doesn't happen, that tends to undermine the authority of those who are warning us. So as I say, 
Patrick Allen's account is a is a historian's account of the history of the environmental movement and of environmental issues. And Stephen Hayward's review is a very interesting evaluation, not only of the history, but also of Professor Allett's um, very pertinent and timely uh, volume, which I, I uh, obviously I recommend Steve Hayward's review unreservedly. And I also would point you in the direction of The Climate of Crisis by Patrick Allett. That is followed by an essay uh, by William Pritchard, professor of English at Amherst and a frequent contributor to our pages, a review of the latest um, novel by Edward St. Aubin. Edward St. Aubin is a British novelist, um, a social satirist, uh, rather in the tradition of Evelyn Waugh and Anthony Pohl, um, best known, I suppose, for a, um, a, a collection of novels uh, under the general rubric, the Patrick Melrose novels, that being the, the um, binding subject. But the current novel uh, under review here is entitled Lost for Words, that is um, uh, uh, has nothing to do with the earlier um, series, but um, William Pritchard makes the very persuasive case that um, Edward St. Aubin very much deserves to be uh, in the same sentence with Waugh and Paul and Huxley and other in the great tradition of English social satirists. And I have to say, Lost for Words, which is published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, um, sounds very entertaining, and um, the piece by William Pritchard will not only tell you about Lost for Words, but will bring you up to date on the author. Uh, I now feel a little bit weighted down by the uh, desire to read the the um, uh, four, excuse me, the five novels, excuse me, of the Patrick Melrose uh, series, um, but they sound like fun. That is followed by a piece by James Banner, um, historian of the early um, American Republic, but also a, a historian of uh, a historiographer, one might say, one who studies the study of history. Uh, James Banner has written for us many times, and the current uh, volume is entitled Presidents and Their Generals, An American History of Command in War by Matthew Moton. Uh, Moton was the uh, former uh, chairman of the history department at West Point, and has written a, a very comprehensive history of the relations uh, between presidents of the United States and the commanders of their armies, or the chiefs of staff of the U.S. Army, or the commanders-in-chief of the U.S. Army, whatever the term may have been at whatever point in American history, but beginning with the relation between relations between George Washington and, and the Continental Congress and proceeding through the early uh, formative stages of the U.S. Army and into the War of 1812 and the Mexican War and, of course, the crucible of the Civil War, which made uh, the uh, interesting and uh, uh, mutually dependent relations between the president and his commanders in the field um, a matter of real historic importance and drama to some degree. But much of the book, of course, is devoted to more recent times, um, the development in the early 20th century of the, of the, um, uh, the modern bureaucracy of the U.S. Army, uh, and then the 
Second World War, um, where, of course, uh, President Roosevelt's chief of staff, General George Marshall, was very much the, in effect, before the term existed, he was, in effect, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and very much the organizer of the American military effort. His um, uh, symbiotic relations relationship with FDR was crucially important um, and enabled him to uh, promote and support those military commanders, Eisenhower, Bradley, uh, Stillwell, Patton, and others, uh, who were so critical to American uh, victory in the Second World War, um, followed, of course, by the the ostentatious political problems that existed between President Truman and his commander in the Far East, Douglas MacArthur, during Korea, and into the modern into modern times, uh, the prosecution of the Vietnam War, which was um, uh, fought very uh, with very close supervision. Washington and um, the wars, the more recent wars in the Middle East, where commanders have generally had a, a freer hand in the field. But nevertheless, the the point is made that that senior generals um, have political as well as military responsibilities, and civilian control of the military remains not only a bedrock principle but also a, a problem that needs to be studied. Um, uh, Matthew Moten's views are well expressed by James Banner, and it's, of course, one of those subjects that that everyone will have his own conclusion uh, based on his own knowledge and experience. But it's an interesting problem, an interesting history, and, and Jim Banner, I think, uh, makes it all very uh, timely and accessible, a very interesting piece. Sophie Flack, who has written for us about uh, dance, um, has another piece um, about a uh, kind of an interesting piece about an American uh, choreographer named Benjamin Millipede, um, who uh, has run the the LA Dance Project, and um, recently had a, a show in New York that was. Um, uh, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was a kind of showpiece of what Benjamin Millipede's choreography is all about, and it's it's quite distinctive and quite interesting. Um, and um, the further interest here is that he has just been uh, just become the director of the Paris Opera Ballet in Paris, obviously, which is a very different kind of world than the avant-garde dance world that he has mastered in Los Angeles and New York. So the question is, uh, will Benjamin Millipede's, um, uh, will his work uh, go over in Paris or not, which is an open question at the moment. Um, that is followed by a review by Thomas Johnson of a this sort of book I, I always enjoy. It's entitled Cool, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything by Salvatore Basili from Fordham University Press. Um, I sort of subscribe to that Daniel Borston view that that um, our culture has been influenced by by things that we don't that historians and 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 social historians don't always recognize. And I think I think the invention and technology is certainly um, a good example of that. And I think air conditioning is is a spectacular example of how 
um, our work habits, our living habits, the way our, our houses are built, the size of our houses, where we live, um, uh, how much vacation time we take each summer, uh, all have been uh, influenced by air conditioning, which of course, is, as anyone who lives in a, in a uh, hot climate, which is to say most of us during the summer, uh, understand that air conditioning has made life um, um, much more bearable than it was in the world prior to the mid-20th century when air conditioning became ubiquitous. And of course, um, there's an environmental cost associated with air conditioning, but the, 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 the subject of this book really is how air conditioning um, has changed the rhythms and patterns of American life, including uh, here in Washington, where the introduction of air conditioning in the Capitol and, of course, in federal offices has very much changed the way um, things are done and has changed the rhythm and the calendar of the political year, um, everywhere except the Supreme Court, which still follows the old farmer's um, calendar of uh, quitting around the 4th of July and not reassembling until the fall is underway. John Pathoritz's piece uh, this week is a review, not of a film, but of a mini-series um, on HBO entitled Olive Kittredge, um, which is uh, best known at the moment, I suppose, because it features uh, Frances McDormand, <coughs> excuse me, an actress who's um, married to one of the Coen brothers of cinema fame, and I won't, I won't give away what John tells you about Olive Kittredge, except to say that uh, he mentions uh, it features the Oscar-winning actress Frances McDormand delivering what may be one of the greatest performances ever recorded, um, which tantalizes my uh, uh, curiosity, I have to say, and I hope yours, and I hope it has tantalized your curiosity about the books and arts section this week of the Weekly Standard. I thank you very much for joining me, and I look forward to talking with you next week.